and welcome to another episode of Worked Up, the podcast where you learn to navigate the workplace, business, and your career with a little more ease and a lot less angst. I'm your host, Jacqueline Beck, and we are joined live in the studio by a very special guest today, Susie Jackson. Susie, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. We are bright and early, and it's a special treat because she is in South Florida from out of town. Susie is a friend of mine who I met on my coaching journey, and we've remained close throughout. And now's the part I get to brag about her a little bit. So she is a partner at a very large professional services firm. She made partner in just 10 years, which is a very quick time frame for context. She's a keynote speaker. She's a communications coach. She's brilliant. She has a wonderful British accent, so has immediate credibility. Susie, thank you so much for being here. Of course. Happy to be here and uh, happy to serve up the accent when required. <laughs> <laughs> always, always. Um, so before we dig into any everything, do you mind just telling everyone a little bit about your background? Yeah, sure. I'd love to. Um, so I actually started life as a musician, um, very, very young age. Uh, I started playing the flute and the saxophone and uh, quickly realized that it was something that I was pretty good at. And I ended up going to university in London to read music and did a joint course with the Royal Academy in performance and uh, spent the majority of my te late teenage and early 20 years uh, traveling, uh, gigging around uh, Europe and across England and really enjoyed it. And then decided to start my own company doing uh, events management. I realized there was a really interesting niche in the music world whereby um, we had a lot of talented musicians in London, especially on the jazz scene, but they were showing up to gigs uh, disorganized, no contracts in place, shirts untucked all over the place. And uh, I realized that there was a little bit of room for a middle a man or a middle woman in my case, and uh, started a, a company representing these musicians for commission. And uh, I really loved it. I was really surprised how much I loved business. Mm. And that really got me thinking about a different path, because as you can imagine, music is a pretty demanding path. It's kind of one way or or no way. Um, and so I started thinking about um, business and Back in my high school years, someone had mentioned management consulting. So it's sort of a seed that had been planted quite early. And uh, I explored and found the company I'm now still with, joined them, um, and frankly had a couple of really awful years. Um, I joined <laughs> uh, and I was surrounded by people from Oxford and Cambridge who all had studied economics. And uh, they had hired me, I now know, for having quite a creative and alternative way of solving problems and thinking about things. But at the time, I just could not fathom why they had decided to hire me <laughs> because I was so different from everyone. Um, and uh, I was sort of chronically insecure about that. But looking back, that was a really formulative time in my career because what I realized was that I could create stories out of really complicated problems. And I was very good at communicating them to clients and to other people on my teams. And so I kind of pulled at that thread. Um, and a few years later, I was trained by Andy Craig, who wrote Weekend Language, 
which is a bit of a Bible for me. It's a fantastic book. If you haven't read it, I would really recommend it. And uh, really learned the art of corporate storytelling. And that tied in my musical background of sort of knowing about being on stage and being a performer with being a corporate executive. And uh, ever since then, I've tied the two together. I obviously use it day in, day out in my day job, but I now use it to coach professionals to think about how they're showing up, how they're communicating, not just in terms of sort of business ideas, but in terms of advocating for themselves and advocating for their career path, what they want. Um, Because I'm a firm believer, you know, I always say hope is not a strategy. That's Mm. my catchphrase. (laughs) Um, And I feel like a lot of people go through their professional careers just sort of hoping that someone might notice what they want to do next or hoping that they'll get the next promotion. And so I spend a lot of my time thinking about that now. So it's been a crazy journey, but it has all tied together in a really interesting way. Well, and that's something we bonded over initially, Mm -hmm. this concept of hope is not a strategy, because I have a very similar philosophy that you can't just be reactive. You can't be on autopilot. You need to be strategic. You need to be intentional and you need to be thoughtful about your moves and what you're doing if you're ultimately going to get where you want to go. Yeah, exactly. I I just truly believe that no one cares about your career as much as you do. Mm -hmm. And so you have to be deliberate about that. And I see so so often someone will come to me and say, oh, I really want this. And I say, well, have you asked for it? And the answer is almost inevitably no. Or, well, I think they might know. You know, I, I hinted at it. And so I think we're kind of coached, especially as women sometimes, to really uh, sort of be try and be subtle or, or, you know, just, oh, they'll spot me if my work's good enough. And I, I just truly don't believe that's true. I think you have to speak for yourself and, and, and you know, amplify your own voice. And so a lot of my time now is spent talking about that topic, talking about corporate storytelling and, and just generally talking about effective communication. Squeaky wheel gets the grease. (laughs) Indeed, indeed. And it's interesting because, particularly as women, there can be a double standard with that. Mm -hmm. Why are you being so pushy? Mm -hmm. Why are you being so loud? Right? But it's true. If you don't toot your horn, no one else is going to. Right. And the way I always counteract that a little bit is a very fact-based approach. Mm. I think that, you know, obviously if I come in and say, you know, I had the biggest number of sales this year and everyone's like oh I I mean okay but if I come in and say you know this year I sold x number of millions of dollars worth of sales and that was more than last year by x percent I'm very factually telling a story and there's a real I think a lot of people think of storytelling and good communication as very fluffy Mm. but it's actually the opposite there's a precision there it's a science as well as an art and I think that's how you get around some of that so There's so many directions I want to go in right now because you have so much amazing stuff to tell people. Um, I want to start with something you said at the outset, which was you were hired for your different way of thinking. And I do get the sense sometimes, particularly in very competitive industries, people think that there's a homogeneity to everyone that gets hired. And there is a tremendous amount of value in different perspectives and in different walks of life. Now, you mentioned that 
there was power and there is power in the way that your brain works a little bit differently, right? But you had to overcome some insecurity before you were able to fully embrace that. So can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I think in the last sort of five, six, seven years, inclusion and diversity has become a corporate standard, right? You know, even even the most backward of companies is understanding the value of inclusion and diversity. And it's easy to think that that was always the case. And it it really wasn't mm. when I started. I mean, I, I, I started my career about 12 years ago now, and I, I joined a, a strategy, the strategy house of, of the firm which was very much prided itself in exclusivity uh, and uh, making sure that, you know, we had a very, very exclusive brand. And uh, and it's interesting to see how that's evolved now because it's just not the case anymore. And, mm. and pe- clients pay for diversity of thought. Um, but back then, it, perhaps it, it that wasn't how things were sort of perceived and how, how we were going about things. But I think what where I really had to dig deep was again evidence points of where was I helpful in a situation. If you ask me to do a deep level regression analysis, I'm not going to be helpful. I can't add one on one and make two. I mean, it's just <laughs> it's just who I am. You tell me a number, I'll go in one ear and out the other. And that was again, as I said, a source of massive insecurity. But then I thought about. Well, when it comes to talking about that analysis, when it comes to talking about what that analysis is saying, I can explain it a lot better than some of the people who are doing the analysis. Mm. And, and when I say this took me years, it took me years to really cotton on to that with being my value. So it's not like I suddenly had this epiphany one day and, and suddenly realized it. But I there, there's a, a thing called Gallup Strengths mm-hmm. Finder. And that really focuses on what are your strengths. And mine are all things like strategic, futuristic, winning others over, and not not um, as much in the kind of deep analytical space. And I think that's a really nice shift. I'm a big fan of Strengths Finder because it focuses on your strengths, not what you can't do. And I read a book and, uh, you know, it's again, it sounds obvious now, but I read a book that said, you know, focus on your strengths, don't pour energy into your weaknesses. Mm. And that was a really profound moment for me. I suddenly realized, oh, I have been focusing on my weaknesses. I've spent all my time desperately trying to learn how to do these analyses and these uh, deeply difficult uh, economic models. Whereas, in fact, I should just be pairing up with the right people and making a diverse team that includes all different types of ways of thinking. And full circle now, I do a lot of work in inclusion and diversity for my local office um, and outside of work. Um, The value of neurodiversity in a Mm. very, very clean way has been uh, acknowledged now as a really, really interesting thing to try and build in um, to teams and a really powerful differentiator. So it's really nice to see how that's evolved. And I hope now this sort of the next generation, I'm trying to age myself here, but the next generation <laughs> doesn't have as uh, as many challenges as I did coming to terms with their strengths over their weaknesses. Well, you are younger than me, so you can't age <laughs> <Marginally>. yourself. <laughs> Marginally, that's true. Um, and by way of background for anyone listening, Strikes Finder is, you can Google it. It's by Gallup, G-A-L-L-U-P. I think it's $45. Anyone can take the test. And it's, it's a really great tool just as a step of, of knowing yourself a little bit more. And, you know, as you're talking about the power of diversity in a group, 
and in a team. I'm also thinking about leverage, right? Spending time doing not only what you excel at, but what you enjoy. Mm-hmm. I happen to know, you know, sneak peek that you enjoy talking and you enjoy <laughs> communications um, and being able to delegate a little bit more, which becomes very difficult for people as they rise through the ranks. Mm. And so that with that power comes that leverage, which comes that knowledge, which comes that ability for delegation, yeah. which is power in and of, of itself. And I want to touch on one thing you mentioned, which is that it took years for you to overcome this insecurity. Oh yeah. If you had to get very specific about what helped you get there, what would it be? So the first is what I mentioned before, which is the evidence points. I I genuinely sought out evidence of mm. when, where and when I'd been helpful. And of course, as you go through your career, just by proxy of spending time, you end up with more evidence points. Right. So that gets easier over time, not harder. I think the other one is mentorship. And I had, I've been lucky enough my entire career to have just the most incredible mentors um, across the world, frankly. And I stay in touch with so many of them now, but I was surrounded by so many people that believed in the value of this diversity before I believed in it myself. And uh, I'm truly grateful for that, to, to have people that were, were or willing to spend the time and work through things with me. So that would be the other one I would say was just hugely, hugely formative for me was to be surrounded by people who um, respected and admired the difference and could help me see that myself, help me see things I couldn't see for myself. That's an amazing visual. For some reason, while you were talking, I was getting this picture of someone showing yourself in a mirror, right? Because sometimes it's so true we're clouded by our perceptions, by our limiting beliefs, by, you know, focusing on the negative, which I know a lot of people tend to do instead of focus on the possibility that sometimes it does take an outside third party to help clear the fog so that you can see yourself clearly and you can see your talents clearly. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's why I, I'm an executive coach myself, but it's why I always have an executive coach full time because I, regardless of the situation, I know that I'm not seeing everything and there's no possible way with every scenario you go through in a, as you said, a highly competitive career that you are seeing everything. So yeah, I mean, hugely beneficial having a coach and helping someone, you know, look at, look at the situation in the mirror with you. They're They're not going to be telling you anything that you didn't know academically, but they might be telling you stuff that you didn't acknowledge emotionally. Now, I want to go back to something you said before. First of all, you mentioned the book Weekend Language, which you gave to me probably about a year ago at this point, believe it or not. Time flies. Time flies when you're having fun. And it's a very short read. I highly recommend it. I think I read it in one day. Fabulous book. Where do you find most people go wrong with corporate storytelling? Trying to be too clever. (laughs) <laughs> what does that mean? So, and I, I work with a lot of incredibly, incredibly clever people in my industry and almost without, uh, without exception, 
when people bring me their first draft of a presentation, their first pitch or what have you, it's almost inevitably too complicated. And I think that comes from this sort of human need to prove ourselves. Mm. So we come in with every single fact and piece of data that we can possibly conjure up and we try and ram it into the presentation at the cost of the overall takeaways. And my job as a coach is to help people who are going into these situations realize that they don't have to put everything on the table straight away. They can send a pre-read, they can send a post packet. Uh, the most important thing is that people are following along the story first. Um, and Weekend Language talks a lot about that. I mean, it says it in the title, right? This, this idea that as soon as we get into the boardroom, we just talk differently and we use facts and, uh, you know, we don't tell stories anymore. And over 75% of how we communicate outside of work is stories. If you think about it, when you're talking about the stories that you go home at night and tell your husband or your family or what have you, you're always telling a story. You're not saying, you know, stats and facts to them. Um, but we, we forget about that. Maybe yeah. some people do. <laughs> I've yet to meet them, so point of my way. Um, but yeah, so I, I, think, I think that's 100% the main thing is, is I bring simplicity to complexity. Yeah. So, so let me ask you something because a little bit earlier you had mentioned how a foc focusing on facts can be quite beneficial. Mm -hmm. And now you're saying that focusing on stories is the way to go. So where do you find the marriage between the two? Oh, so that's a great question. It's one I often get, actually. So here's a fact for you to go back to facts. Uh, <laughs> fact, stories are 22 times more memorable than facts. Our brains are wired, and we can talk about the neuroscience in a minute if you're interested, but our yeah. brains are wired uh, to remember stories much better than facts. So therefore, de facto, you must, must, must have the story as the backbone. However, coming back to the point I said earlier about stories being perceived as fluffy, if you have only stories with no fact base, you're going to end up with a lot of conjecture. And that's the opposite of really what we're trying to do with stories. So what we're trying to do is pair the story as the arc and then make sure that we're supporting it with really hard hitting data. And that does not mean all the data we've ever collected about the point. It is what are the couple of really compelling pieces that back that up as evidence. And I suppose context has a big part to do in this as well because it depends on your audience. It depends on the goal of the conversation. Are you trying to go for the promotion? Like we were talking about earlier or the raise. I, you know, produced X in sales this year, which was an X percent increase and X percent greater than the rest of the team, right? Can't argue those facts. Yep. Or are you in a client presentation and maybe you're working with an esoteric topic that you're trying to bring to life? so that they can relate to it a little bit more. Yeah, that's exactly right. And also what social style are you dealing with on the other end? Um, because you, you need to adapt a little bit for your social styles. So for example, if you are uh, presenting or discussing with a driver, uh, you know, how do you get quickly to the main points of the story and move things along at pace, uh, which is different than if you're dealing with an analytic which who's going to need to spend some time digesting some more of the details typically. So I always talk to my clients about thinking about the social style analysis of 
you know, who they're, who they're going in to speak with as well. Can you talk more about that? The social styles, what they are, who they are? Yeah, of course. So social styles are split into four quadrants um, and uh, they are uh, driver, expressive, analytic and amiable. And the idea is essentially that they are how we uh, are perceived by others, not perceived by ourselves, which is an interesting thing because you'll often hear people, including myself, who will say, well, I'm a driver but actually that defeats the object. Do other people perceive you as a driver? Um, so it's how other people perceive how you handle social situations. So an analytic is typically someone who really likes to get into the detail, um, be very, very uh, data oriented, really mm. know the process behind how you got to your conclusions. An amiable is someone who uh, values the relationship above all else, who perhaps wants to spend a little bit more time talking about the weather or their children or what they had for dinner that day, you know, that really values that kind of um, trust-based relationship. Then you've got the expressive, who is going to react um, sort of typically more strongly than other social stars to information. Uh, you'll probably know how they feel pretty quickly. Um, and driver, which is get things done like yesterday where let's get going. You don't need to give me the context. Let's go like, let, uh, let's get to the punchline. Um, and you can be a combination, uh, expressive and driver are both on the right hand side. Uh, so I am very firmly in the middle of those two. Um, but, um, I'm very far to the right, uh, analytic and amiable on the left hand side. And so you can, it's a, it's a spectrum. So you can obviously then be further to the left as well. So if you're interested, it's all very available online. Um, lots of very quick and easy quizzes you can do online to see what you perceive your social style to be, but being more interesting is to give it to other people and see what they fill in for you. And if someone's going into a pitch or a conversation, how can they quickly assess who's on the other side of the table from them? Well, firstly, uh, my first recommendation would be always speak to people that know people never go in cold. Mm. Um, that's uh, in, in this day and age, it should be pretty easy to do. We ha- all have social networks um, that we can tap. So certainly don't go in cold unless you absolutely have to and you're taken by surprise on the day. And the next one is just being incredibly socially aware. Some of the best pitchers I know are people who have really good EQ mm. and can very, very easily pick up on social cues that would suggest a social style. Um, for me, for example, if I'm listening, I often exhibit impatience <laughs> and that might suggest I'm a driver. Um, so that they would be the, the main things to look for. And then when, if you're going in with a team, think about who is doing what, for example, I'm always the opener and the closer, for example, because, uh, of the way, uh, as a driver, I like to get to the point and, uh, you know, paint a bit of a picture. Uh, perhaps if I'm partnered with someone who's more detail oriented and really enjoys getting to the sort of process of the work, perhaps you put them in the middle in the piece of analysis, that kind of thing. So This is a really interesting one to think about when you're pitching one to one or one to a few. Obviously, it gets muddied as soon as you get to one to many, but um, I I like it as a framework. um, And it's certainly something I try to think about when I'm when I'm going into meetings. That's all great advice. And you had mentioned the neuroscience earlier behind storytelling and why they are 22 times more likely to be remembered. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, for sure. So it all comes back to when we were cavemen and women. If you think about it, in the really early days, we didn't even have slates to carve into to communicate with each other. 
everything we knew as humans was passed down to us verbally. And so if you were being chased by a lion and you ran up a tree and didn't get eaten by the lion, you'd probably go home that day and say, guys, I figured out how to get away if you're being chased by a lion. And so our brains over time, over millennia, developed to be able to consume stories as a way of advancement and a way of learning, because that was how we were literally surviving. And so we have this concept now, if you're telling a story to someone, the part of the brain that lights up when you're telling the story lights up in the other person at the same time. Mm. And that's called neural coupling. And that's what makes stories really, really memorable. So when you're leaning into storytelling, you're releasing by doing neural coupling two main hormones, which is oxytocin and dopamine. And uh, oxytocin is willingness to cooperate. It's kind of, you know, you need something, let me, let me know how I can help. Uh, which, by the way, is the same hormone that's released when you have a hot beverage. So if you want to have someone be uh, extra helpful, give them a hot drink before you get started. Um, Tips and tricks. Exactly. There you go. I'm, I'm revealing myself now. I hope none of my clients listen. <laughs> um, and then um, the other one is dopamine. Dopamine is all about finding out the punchline, really, really wanting to know what happens next, the eagerness to, to figure out the end result. And that's what you're releasing with stories. And when you tell stats and facts, you're not releasing those hormones. So you're robbing yourself of the opportunity to connect with your listener. And it seems like everything is going back to that emotional connection. Correct. And there's so much science and thought and attention being put on emotional intelligence right now. And in particular, in industries that tend to attract very analytical people like management consulting, like finance, like law, et cetera. How do you recommend that if someone, let's say, feels like they fall short on the EQ spectrum, how do you recommend that they start exercising that muscle? Yeah, it's a great question. This comes back to the, the, the sort of point around innate versus learned skills, which I think is a really interesting one. And that's, by the way, so another thing that's come a long, long way in the last 10 years, which is this idea of a growth mindset and mm. understanding that you aren't sort of an, uh, a made of stone and the way you come out at birth, it's the way you're going to be for life. Um, so I really embrace that one as well. I suppose it goes back to the strengths piece. I would say very deliberately understanding where you are as a first step, you know, as a good uh, management consultant, I'll say a current as is assessment, as we call it, (laughs) but really reading, doing the analyses, understanding where you are on that. And there are plenty, and I'm sure your listeners will be familiar, uh, you know, there's plenty of those analyses that a coach or you can help you through or you can do yourself. So getting that self-awareness is a big one because EQ is, is, definitely a huge part of it is self-awareness, not really awareness of others. Um, So that's a great place to start. And then thinking about how you're applying that to a everyday situation um, and what works for you, what doesn't, how do other people respond, et cetera, um, would be where I would start. And then again, going back to the M word mentorship, making sure that if there are people that seem to handle difficult situations or complicated social situations better than you, you are learning from them, you're following them, you're listening to them. 
and you're taking what is going to work for you, you know, little bits and pieces. I call myself a magpie. I'm a communication magpie, but you can be an EQ magpie. Take little pieces that you like from different people you interact with and try and infuse them and see how that works for you. I've done that in the past and it's benefited me tremendously. I would also add to that, if I may, know yourself well enough to know what will fit you and what won't because not everyone's style works for you. And you can tell when someone's trying something on and it's not authentic to them. A hundred percent. Yeah. That's the, that's the art of being a magpie. You have to pick and choose what's actually going to work. And I think it's, it's funny because going back to communication, I think that's a, a really big one for communication. You know, you have to be prepared to fail over and over and over again. Mm. And you listen back to something you think, Oh, I really shouldn't have done that. Or I really shouldn't (laughs) have said that. I don't sound like myself because at the end of the day, great communicators are the most authentic. Very well said. And it's interesting for me hearing you in this context because, you know, we're friends and we've chatted quite a bit and hearing you use the stories yourself and then support them with data, you're very much so practicing what you preach. Even when we were talking about the neuroscience and you immediately went to the story of running away from the lion and climbing up the tree, right? So I would even say for people listening to this podcast, re-listening to it with an ear to how is Susie answering these questions, right? She's, she's taking these concepts, illustrating them, painting a picture through stories, and then supporting them with data and facts that are actionable. So that's a great, you know, speaking of being a communications magpie, you know, <laughs> go back, and, go back and, and, and listen for a particular ear to that. As you're talking, I think many people probably know someone who is a very long-winded or verbose storyteller. So if someone thinks that they're in that camp, how would you advise them to help them get to the point? Uh, Great question. Yes, this is one I deal with on an almost daily basis. Firstly, let's let's be incredibly critical about what we're bringing to the table and let's get creative about that. I think that's inc- it's very important. You know, if you think about what do you need to share on the day, what can you share separately via, you know, an email or a pre-read or a follow-up, what really doesn't need to be shared? There needs to be a really critical analysis there. And that can be a little bit tough because usually when people are an expert on a subject, their data and their information is their baby. And it's very, very hard to separate people from it. Um, so really there, usually when I work with people like that, it's kind of proving to them how little you need to share to get your point across, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I think that would, um, I think that would be my main one. And then thinking about the story arc. So very simply, the story arc basically says introduction, disruption, and close. And again, I am simplifying (laughs) largely, but the Titanic is a great example of a story arc. So the boat is built in Belfast. Everyone's very excited about the state of this boat. It's sort of a a best in class and some very wealthy people are going on it. There's a little bit of a class friction there. 
there's a love story they go out to sea the disruption is the iceberg there's an unfortunate <laughs> mishap in the middle of the ocean that's our disruption that creates our tension our dopamine what's going to happen next and then you can take what you want as a conclusion is it a commentary on class is it commentary on love is it a commentary on the progress of manufacturing in in the, the 1800s <laughs> or whenever it, whenever it was set i believe it was 1914 or 1913 casual just in april yes so so susie is this why i saw it 13 times in the theater when i was in fifth grade i watched it once and was too traumatized (laughs) to ever see it again i cried my eyes out so (laughs) my poor parents i don't know what the cost of a of a theater ticket was back in whenever i was in fifth grade but i remember i went 13 times to see it 13 there we go. I picked the perfect, perfect story <laughs> for the occasion. Little did I know that I was talking to an expert. <laughs> Not quite. <laughs> but that's a great one, right? So if you're very verbose, you can sort of almost sketch the arc out on a piece of paper and say, how am I going to stick to this arc? Because especially when you're verbose, you tend to lose the arc, go on little tendrils here, there and everywhere. And the critical question you have to keep asking yourself is, is what I'm saying adding to this arc or taking away? That That's great. And as you're talking, I'm thinking so much about my former life as a real estate capital raiser, where I would go into these pitches and my audience would vary drastically. And they would either be uber sophisticated, had worked in real estate and finance for their entire careers, or maybe this is something that was relatively newer to them. And the story was the same, but how I presented the story was vastly different. And one thing I find with a lot of people who are going into sales pitch situations, and you mentioned this at the outset, is they want to get all the facts out because they want to prove themselves and they want everyone to know that they know what they're doing and they're smart and they have all the data. And I always like to advise those people, what is the goal of this meeting, Mm. right? Usually there's multiple sales meetings. It's never just one. So what is the specific goal of this interaction? And then what support do you need to achieve that specific goal? Right. Yeah. As a way of filtering. Yeah. It's a marathon, not a sprint. Exactly. So I'm looking at the clock and I cannot believe how quickly the time has flown. I feel like we could talk for an hour plus easily, but I do want to rapid fire two questions to you. put you in the hot seat. We've talked a lot about advice. So in terms of someone who's looking to refine or sharpen their communication skills, what do you think is the first step they can take? It's probably the musician in me speaking, but I would say that it really is practice, practice, practice. I mean, it's truly, truly like learning an instrument. And I genuinely believe that perfection is the enemy of the good in communication skills. So put yourself out there. I know that glossophobia, the fear of public speaking is incredibly rife. So putting yourself out there is an incredibly hard step, but put yourself out there, be a magpie, try things on for size, discard things that don't work and keep practicing relentlessly because it's a con it's an art it's not a science you're going to constantly evolve and don't be afraid of that don't if you are looking back at a speech you did a year ago and cringing that's a great thing Mm because that means that you're growing and learning so don't let perfection get in the way of that and start practicing now I do think there's this myth 
that people think great speakers are born. Mm-hmm. When the reality is there's a lot of blood, sweat, and tears that goes behind those TED Talks or those videos that we see online. People practice and practice and practice. And that's one thing, actually, that I got from Weekend Language, the book you gave me as well. Yeah, No, for sure. I mean, it's people are always moaning about our fees, but our fees are well earned behind the scenes, I promise. <laughs> it's just like musicians. It's hours and hours and hours of practicing in a darkened room. So absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. That's great. And so true. Um, all right. Take this question however you will. What do you know now that you wish you knew back then? Oh, good one. Um, I think the main thing I know now is that success comes when you're in a great team or partnership, however you want to interpret that. I started my career thinking about it as an individual crusade. Mm. And now I see the times I've been most successful is when I'm operating in a pair or surrounded by an incredible team. Um, And that has been really, really profound for me, letting people in you know, and uh, being a partnership when it comes to sales, being a partnership when it comes to delivery, when it comes to all the things, you know, the side hustles, letting people in and being a, a partnership or, or more than just a two of you is incredibly powerful for me. And it's what makes me truly enjoy what I do now. And I think it, it takes the pressure off, but it also gives you fresh inspiration every single day. So I would say this is a team sport, not an individual sport. What helped you make the shift from the individual crusader to the team player? Profound mentorship. Truly people saying to me, what would happen if you brought this person into the room with you? Mm. What would happen if you bounced your ideas off someone before you did this? And having that and thinking, you know what, nothing bad would happen, only good. And uh, knowing that trusting people and having those really, really deep relationships is at the root of it has been incredible to me. And I, I thank a lot of mentors for pointing that out to me. Um, so yeah, I would definitely say mentorship again. Susie, this has been such a great conversation. Thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed it. Unsurprising. I knew it would be, (laughs) we'll have to find time to do this again. Yes. Let's do a sequel. Sequel part two coming soon. (laughs) Maybe we'll have it on two VHS tapes like Titanic was. (laughs) It comes full circle, but, but First, before, before we close out, if someone wants to get in touch with you, how can they best do that? Um, the quickest way is probably LinkedIn. Uh, I'm very easy to find Susie Jackson on LinkedIn um, and uh, I will get back to you there. That's probably the best way to get me. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for being here. And as always to our listeners, thank you for joining us on another episode of Worked Up. Look out for new episodes on Tuesdays. You can tell we have amazing guests joining us in the studio. Please don't forget to subscribe, like, and leave reviews. And please connect with us on Instagram at Jacqueline Beck Consulting on our website, www.jacquelinebeckconsulting.com or email us at info at jacquelinebeckconsulting.com. That's Jacqueline spelled J-A-C-L-Y-N Beck, B-E-C-K. See you next time. Bye.